the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the Daily Show Prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Hello, everybody. Dennis Prager here, here being Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I have a uh, talk tonight in nearby, nearby, at a nearby university in Ohio, actually. I love Pittsburgh, one of my favorite cities. Good to be with you, my friends. As we watch the epic battle for civilization take place I mention this almost every day because people don't believe it. Even many people who are not on the left don't understand that literally civilization is being fought over. And that is is the case at this time. The loathing of Western civilization, the loathing of its basis, the Bible, the Judeo-Christian value system, it's beyond loathing, it is contempt. There is a contempt for it. If you say that you take the Bible seriously, you are considered a fool. And that that idea has been transmitted to an entire generation. Indeed, two generations, maybe even three, because it was transmitted to my generation, the baby boomer generation. Intelligent people don't take the Bible seriously. It's a fairy tale about some creature uh, up in the sky. That's, That's the way it's dismissed. Meanwhile, it's only secular people who say that men give birth. It is secular people who advocate the castration of boys who say that they are girls and the removal of the breasts of girls who say they are boys. This is, it is a monopoly. These uh, idiotic and evil ideas are a monopoly of the secular. There are secular people who don't hold these ideas, but all the people who do are. Here's a piece from the Federalist, Colorado's new trans-tourism law beckons red state kids for trans interventions and abortions. Colorado Democrat Governor Jared Polis signed a new law last week to to circumvent red state bans on abortion and transgender treatments. While Republican lawmakers ramp up protections for vulnerable teens, Caught in America's contemporary transgender craze, Polis aims to make Colorado a destination for impressionable minors to seek permanent procedures from puberty blockers to surgery. That's right, California and Colorado. I don't know how Colorado became such a weird state. Morally weird. I don't care about weird that people wear sneakers on their heads. 
I'm not talking about that weird. I'm talking about morally weird. Yeah, you're 12 years old and your parents don't want you uh, to have a hormone blocker because they they know that you're a boy, even though you say you're a girl. This didn't happen 10 years ago, let alone 50, 100, 150, 200. It was exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Today it is more and more common because if you have any issue in your life, what you say is, oh, I'll solve it by changing sexes, as if you can change sexes the way you can change political parties. Although the truth is people find it psychologically easier, some people, to change sexes than political parties. Here in Colorado, this is what the governor said, it, it, uh, it causes a certain degree of nausea. Here in Colorado, we value individual freedoms. Really? You, you value individual freedoms in Colorado? Oh, there were no lockdowns? There were no mask mandates? You didn't fire people in the Colorado government who refused to get vaccinated? You believe in freedom of speech, that even if you don't agree with the speech, it should be on Twitter or Facebook or, or YouTube? You do believe that? Really? Well, you're the only Democrat who does. Only Democrat in power, let's put it that way. Here in Colorado, we value individual freedoms. I tell you, it's sickening, the, the lying that goes on on the left. Really? You believe a 12-year-old can decide? In fact, the the various children's hospitals that do these procedures, they believe that a six-year-old can decide. They've said it. But you you believe, Governor, you believe a 12-year-old can decide? What if an 11-year-old shows up in, in Colorado? My mommy doesn't believe that I'm a boy. A girl shows up, she's 11. What will Colorado do? Ten. Will they send them back to the parents? You can't vote. You can't vape. But you can decide to do incredible damage to your body and your psyche at 12. And that's what he calls individual freedoms, the governor of Colorado. The Democratic Party is vile. It is truly vile. President of the United States is a Democrat, and he has invited the the guys with the bullhorns from the Tennessee Assembly to be honored at the White House. <laughs> you should watch that video. Guy sneaked in a a bullhorn into the into the chamber and egged on the crowd in the gallery, and they expelled him. And he's a hero to the left. These are heroes. I'm excited, excited, wow, by the work of advocates and legislators to further Colorado's reputation as a beacon of freedom, a beacon of choice, a beacon of individuality where we live on our own terms. Really, the Democrats... And the left are beacons of freedom, choice, and individuality. Uh. Hi, I wonder, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder, how do they treat a doctor uh, who differed 
with the Medical Association on hydroxychloroquine as an early therapeutic for a person with COVID. Really? You honor individuality? Hmm. Is the University of Colorado at Boulder known for its free speech advocacy? Just asking. And I'm not being cute. I'm just asking. Senate Bill 23-188, signed into law Friday, opens the door for, quote, trans-tourism, unquote, in the state, allowing minors to seek abortions or gender-affirming health care services. It's so interesting. It's gender-affirming and sex-denying. Of course, they invented the term gender. This is a complete invention, The word existed, but it never meant what they do. They distinguish it from sex. That's how they get around it. Oh, yeah, your sex may be male, but your gender is female. Like sex doesn't matter. Gender-affirming health care services. Well, we believe in sex-affirming health care services. Conservatives should answer that, or indeed every non-leftist. We believe in sex-affirming health care services, and they believe in gender-affirming health care services. That, that's a very important distinction that should be noted. <clears throat> Teens seduced by trans ideology in Kansas, where lawmakers are preparing to ban interventions for minors, may travel to Colorado for sterilizing procedures under Polis's protection with parental consent. Well, that's an interesting question. With parental consent, they're writing here, uh, in the Federalist. I'm not sure that they're right. I don't think you need parental consent. You don't if you go to uh, California, by the way. If to, You don't need parental consent if your state uh, uh, bans these procedures for minors. So I I think, I'm not sure the article got that right. I'll have to look into that. Similar legislation is under consideration, as in Kansas, in Wyoming, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Texas. Utah Republican Governor Spencer Cox signed a bill to bar underage transgender surgeries earlier this year, but included provisions in the legislation to make the new law toothless. He's an odd governor. I'll go into that another time. So this is what uh, this is what they're proud of. On the abortion issue, I I have been advocating f- for a while that the most important thing that pro-life people should push for is not bans, as much as right to be informed. That that's what should be. Everyone who goes for an abortion should be shown a video or pictures of what they are doing. That's it. Informed consent. Natural disasters, airline cancellations and runway near misses, supply chain issues, inflation, rising interest rates, and sky-high government debt. This is Dennis Prager for Amfed Coin and Bullion. 
There's a lot in the news about what consumers cannot control. So let's talk about what you can control. You can control how you choose to invest and protect your wealth. That's why I choose to do business with Nick Grovich and his company, AmFed Coin and Bullion. Now is a great time to own tangible assets like gold, silver, and platinum. With over 41 years experience and tens of thousands of satisfied clients, Nick will help you make informed decisions and show you smart choices, which have been proven winners time and time again. AmFed Coin and Bullion will sell you the right types of precious metals to get the maximum value for your money. Take control of your investments like I did. Call Nick and his team at AmFed Coin and Bullion at 800-221-7694. AmericanFederal.com, AmericanFederal.com. The news is is, is relentlessly <laughs> corrupting. <laughs> uh, what am I going to tell you, my friends? It, it, it's it's an astonishing time that we're living in. The, the 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 collapse of of reason. Michael Knowles is here, ironically, at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm in Pittsburgh for uh, another appearance. He's at the University of Pittsburgh. He was supposed to debate a transgender individual who backed out saying that uh, she didn't know who Michael Knowles was. So I don't understand. She took the debate not knowing who, who he is. And then Michael Knowles, of course, is with uh, with Daily Wire. He, he has said that transgenderism should be eradicated. He never said transgender individuals should be eradicated the idea is is loathsome of course i mean nobody's advocating the death of anybody well that's not true i'm sure there there are people advocating the death of michael knowles and uh, anybody who opposes this what we have here there are there are two groups that are involved in the protests on behalf of transgenderism the the ideologues well there were really three groups first the ideologues the people whose ideology is to uh, destroy the entire heteronormative system of judeo-christian western civilization that the ideal is the normative if you will is you identify as the sex you and in fact are uh, you marry someone of the opposite sex and produce a family. That is hated by the left. The very idea. They don't hate people who do that. They hate advocating it as the ideal. That you must understand that. The nuclear family is detested as an ideal. They don't detest it. They detest it as an ideal. And it has been the ideal all through Western history. So that's those are the ideologues. Then there are the handful of people who identify as transgender. They they have an obvious reason to uh, protest and be vehement about the issue. And then there are those like the students screaming and yelling and and stamping their stomping their feet. Uh, these are the the young people in our society who need meaning 
and they will find it in whatever leftist cause touches them. The meaning seekers, because nothing gives them meaning. Being an American gives them no meaning. Being a male or female gives them no meaning. And, of course, being religious in the traditional Judeo-Christian sense gives them no meaning. So they have found meaning in protest, and specifically in this case on protesting on behalf of the transgender. So it has caused them to adopt a lie that men give birth. They will say that. So there are those on the left who say that Dennis Prager is not telling the truth uh, because transgender men do give birth, but they don't say transgender men give birth. They say men give birth. If they say transgender men give birth, well, then transgender men give birth. But they don't say that. They say men give birth. That's the giant lie, one of the many giant lies of our time. So the president is honoring the the Tennessee legislators who brought a bullhorn into the session. What am I going to tell you, my friends? We have a bad human being. His president is not a human that I differ with. He's a bad human. I hap- he's a bad human that I happen to differ with. That's what, uh, that's what we have in the White House. NIH study recruiting 18-year-olds to learn unknown side effects of testicle removal for gender dysphoria. The NIH research said the side effects of surgically removing testicles from biological males has not been extensively studied. Gee, no kidding. You on the left, you are pro-castration of healthy males in the name of an ideology, and they're proud of it. That's why I wrote and did uh, wrote a column, and I did a video for PragerU on the general uselessness of the conscience. If the conscience were strong, the world would be good. The conscience is not strong. The conscience in most people is a function of what they tell the conscience to think. People tell their consciences what to think. Their conscience does not tell them what to think. They're not guided by their conscience. They guide their conscience by their feelings. To be for castrating males, because they say that they are females, and then what, what exists once that's castrated? Is it, is it allowed to say that this is, this is sick, that this is unhealthy? Are we even allowed to offer that idea? And yet the number of doctors, disproportionately female doctors, because the female has to battle emotions like males have to battle their aggression and sexual predatory nature. We return. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with my pillow. 
is launching the MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free offer with promo code Prager. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listeners square to the buy one, get one free offer. Enter promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 to get your MyPillow 2.0 now. I am Alex Epstein, author of Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. He is the presenter of this week's PragerU video, Fossil Fuels, The Big Picture. Alex is a fighter. Alex is a truth teller. And it is a delight to have you on again, Alex. Alex, do do they ever... Yeah, with pleasure. Alex, do they ever uh, invite you for debates? I would say I force debates. I don't I don't know who I don't nobody is inviting me for debates at Greenpeace or something like that or the Sierra Club fundraiser. I think it would be a pretty failed fundraiser if I were invited to debate. I mean, t- tomorrow though, here's an interesting thing. Uh, there's this event in Dallas called Earth X run by a guy named Trammell Crow. And the Secretary of Energy, former Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, helped organize an event. And it's going to be him interviewing me and then the Texas state climatologist, who's somewhat of a climate catastrophist. So that's not exactly a debate, but I think it'll be really interesting for people to see what happens when we square up against each other. You're on the same stage together? Yeah, we're on the same stage. So so Secretary Perry is going, or former Governor Perry is going to be moderating or discussing uh, and then, yes, it's me. And we're on the same stage altogether. And the Texas State Climatologist. You know, it's interesting. They say all the time that people like you, and for, for that matter, Prager, you and me personally and others, that there's money in it if you uh, defend fossil fuels or if you just take issue with the uh, with the hysteria over existential threats to human life just review for a moment the ratio of money available to the hysterics versus the anti-hysterics you know there there are different studies on this and some say four times some say 10 times i I don't think it's anywhere near that low i think you know on the order of 100 times you just just let's look at what is the most popular political view in the world today it's the world that we should rapidly eliminate the fossil fuel industry. So think about how much money and status is tied to that goal. So you think about just even in the U.S., we had this Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, this is just a tiny drop in the bucket, but this thing was supposedly $400 billion per solar, wind, and batteries mostly. I, I documented recently on energytalkingpoints.com, you know, it ends up being trillions of dollars. And this is trillions and trillions of dollars. Look at every major financial institution almost, leading corporations. How much money is in this? And then just the whole, you can't even talk about the money, though, because it's the whole co-opting of the educational system 
And so it's just everybody's job and status is tied to supporting the anti-fossil fuel movement. So it has what I call a moral monopoly, or it, it has had it. I think I've started to break it and others have started to break it. But just the idea that it's some profitable thing to be against the establishment, against the most popular political idea in the world, and that everyone supporting the most popular political idea in the world has no financial or status incentive, uh, this is implausible. Well, it's actually a big lie, and yet uh, people get away with it. (laughs) So what's the story right now on... uh, the percentage in temperature that if everything the Democrats want enacted, the basically the end of the internal combust, combustion engine car, I read, I, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, but I don't recall, 0.18% of, of the world's uh, carbon emissions will have been reduced. Am I, am I getting it right? No, it was not. It wouldn't be that of the emissions. So you can think of the U.S. as something like one seventh of the world's CO2 emissions. So, if, yeah, if we eliminated all of our CO2 emissions, which I want to highlight. That means all of us dying. Give I mean, me. I was just talking. I was just talking about cars. If the the elimination of, of oh, yeah. the car as we know it would be that, what what percentage of the world's emissions would that affect? That, it depends on even what you consider a car, right? Like transportation right now is about you, like fossil fuel based transportation is 25 percent of U.S. energy. Right. So if, so round numbers, if you're saying the U.S. is about 15, so you're talking about like it's 4 percent of the world's energy, something like that. Right. So it, it, it would be even from their perspective, essentially insignificant. I don't want to put any words in your mouth. Is that well, accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think it's, there's something to this argument, but I think the, the real thing is they're claiming that, oh, everyone is going to follow suit. And I think this is where we should take issue because if we're just committing a unilateral sacrifice and harming our mobility, destroying our standard of living, which just getting rid of the internal combustion engine would totally destroys your standard of living, no question, right now at this point in economic history – like, then is China going to follow suit? Is Russia going to follow suit? I mean, we know this is not true already. China has more coal, new coal in the process of being built than we have total coal in the United States. So this is just a total self-indulgent right. fantasy All right. sacrifice. Gonna, I'm going to come back to Alex Epstein. Uh, Fossil Future is his book, but the, we're having him on in particular because he's the latest PragerU video. Fossil Fuels, The Big Picture. Up at Prager U. Dennis Prager here in Pittsburgh. Alex Epstein in Dallas. Alex Epstein is one of the foremost experts on the whole issue of fossil fuel, carbon dioxide, etc., He believes, as I do, that we are living in the age of hysteria, that there is an existential threat to human life and biological life generally from carbon dioxide as much as men give birth. I'm not putting, I don't want to put words in his mouth. That is how I would put it. We are living in the age of the absurd. And I I have a view as to why we do 
not everybody who who agrees with me that it is the age of the absurd agrees on the etiology, but I subscribe to the Chesterton or alleged Chesterton statement that when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And the world is coming to an end is an example. Why don't you, in a nutshell, Alex, because people need to hear this over and over, why don't you make the case for why you reject the idea that the there is an existential threat to human life from carbon dioxide? All right, well, let me say, yeah, so we could have a discussion. So I don't agree with the, the Chesterton thing, at least not in, in this context, because I'm not a religious person, and I uh, I, I don't think it requires Thinking any of you. faith to see that. <laughs> I require... I don't think it requires any faith to see that fossil fuels are amazingly good for human life and, and, and specifically not to worship unimpacted nature. I think that's a lot of what goes on is people worship, uh, they want to sacrifice human beings to unimpacted nature. Anyway, that, that doesn't answer your question directly. Could you restate the question? Cause I got direct. I got yeah, distracted just, by yeah. breakfast. No, I know that. And let me just say, uh, I, I 100% agree with you. You don't have, you don't have to believe in God. You can believe in Zeus and understand that, there's truth. I fully acknowledge that. But but in fact, and I don't, I don't want to debate this with you, only I would love to because I so admire you, but I don't want to get distracted. I'm just saying what I believe the societal, not any given individual, the societal acceptance of absurdity uh, it does correspond to the fact that there is there is we have abandoned Judeo-Christian principles. I agree with you. You don't need those principles in order to understand truth. I agree with you. But in fact... Uh, that would be an interesting uh, debate the, sometime. Yeah, I w- no, we should do it. It would be very good because people like you are my allies, and I am your ally. We only differ on what the cause of the absurdity is, not the absurdity. So that's why we're allies and why it matters. Okay. So I'm asking you to give a brief synopsis of why you, who would like to live a long life and want others to live a long life, are not worried as as the climate extremists, which is now the norm, are. In other words, why isn't it an existential threat? Well, let's just let's just look at this, and this is what the video does. And I got a really nice message from a like a former politician who said something like, "I just posted this on Twitter at Alex Epstein." Like he said, "Your new PragerU video, your five-minute PragerU video, will save the world," which you know, I hope so. I think it is a really good video. I think it's by far my best video that I've done. And I think the core of why it's effective is it gives a very very common sense way of thinking about the issue that nobody can dispute and that yet almost nobody follows and I think it'll encourage people to follow it and it's that when you look at fossil fuels just like when you look at a prescription drug you should carefully weigh the benefits and side effects so when we're thinking about fossil fuels impact on climate we have to think about it in the context of fossil fuels benefits including crucially fossil fuels have enormous climate what i call a climate mastery benefit they allow us to neutralize climate danger so if you let's look at the past hundred years of using fossil fuels what's happened we've used them to power machines for billions of people to be productive and prosperous which we could not have done at this scale without fossil fuels including we've used all sorts of machines to make our climate unnaturally safe through heating cooling irrigation crop transports buildings sturdy buildings etc and here's what's happened We've, we haven't taken a safe climate and made it a, a, a dangerous climate. Sorry, we haven't taken a safe climate and made it dangerous. We've taken a dangerous climate and made it safe. The rate of climate-related disaster death is down by a factor of 50. It's down 98% 
over the last century. So your chances of dying from a climate disaster, the things we're supposed to be afraid of, is 150th of what it used to be. So fossil fuels have made the world an amazingly abundant and safe place. And then that's corresponded to one degree of warming, which obviously hasn't hurt us overall, even climate-wise. So how insane do you have to be to believe that another half a degree or one degree, the world is going to end? No, as long as we're free to use fossil fuels, the world will continue to get better. And any adverse climate changes we can obviously deal with in the same way we've dealt with the adverse climate of nature for the last hundred years. It seems so evident. What world would we have had? Yes, that's right. It is. What so? Let me ask you. What do you think animates the hysteria? I've never asked you that. I'm very, and I don't know your answer. What will you? What will? What will you say animates it? Yeah. So I, I talk about this a lot in, in chapter three of the book, and and so I think there's two things, and I think every time you see hysteria, these things are going on. It's anti-human assumptions and anti-human values. And just very quickly, the anti-human assumption is this idea that the earth is what I call a delicate nurturer, that human beings are parasite polluters, and that our impact necessarily destroys our environment. And so that's why you get all these apocalypse predictions, and people never learn from them being wrong, because they have this false view of the earth and humans. Earth is actually wild potential that our impact generally makes better. We're not parasite polluters. We're producer improvers. But insofar as you have this, the, the false narrative about the earth, which most people, including most scientists do, you, you're always going to believe in apocalypse. So you, you don't really believe in the benefits of fossil fuels. They just seem transitory and the world is half the end. The other thing is anti-human values. And this is really true of the leadership. The reason they can't see the benefits of fossil fuels, say, to climate is they're not judging climate or anything else by how good is it for human flourishing. They're judging it by how little impacted it is by human beings. Their primary goal is eliminating our impact from Earth, including climate. So for them, even though we've taken a dangerous climate and made it safe, it's evil because it's impacted, because we did it. So their real their real focus is on eliminating the evil of human impact, and they judge things by that standard. So they, for them, That's the right. benefits and of not, energy are not, not having really children because they've impacted yep. the Earth. Yeah, they well think said. of children as evil. They think of all human impact as evil. Right. And that's all that's right. the root of it. So that's what I argue. Folks, watch the future. video. He says it's the best he's ever made. I think they're all great. Fossil fuels at PragerU. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Dennis. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show, coming to you from Pittsburgh. I have a speech tonight at Franciscan University in Ohio, which is across the border here. Hence, I am at Pittsburgh at my wonderful station here, my Salem station in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I like Pittsburgh and Tampa, the two of my favorite cities in the country. There's a big difference between eastern Pennsylvania and western Pennsylvania. Western Pennsylvania is America that has not gone crazy. I think that's a way to put it. There there are people who have gone crazy here. In in light of this topic of gone crazy, incidentally, uh, there is an interesting piece that I I just had up that I'd like to share with you. Uh, Here it is, yeah. It's a piece in The Federalist. Your doctor asking for your pronouns 
isn't just annoying, it's a sign of the industry's decline. That's right. Last summer, I went to establish care at a new doctor's office, writes L. Purnell, this woman. Incidentally, by the way, just as a parenthetical note, when you meet somebody, let's say you're in a restaurant, and the server, take a neutered term, which is done purposely in the neutering of the human species, used to be waiter and waitress, now it is server. You know why, right? After all, you would think server is is more demeaning than waitress or waiter. I'm here to serve you. Ooh. I don't know why that isn't sort of like master bedroom and isn't eliminated. But what they've wanted to do for years is to neuter language as much as possible. But when you do have your server come over and you always, always, well, unless it's it's dubious, 99.9% of the time you make an assumption that it is a man or a woman. So if you uh, would like uh, something, uh, uh, sir, can I trouble you, sir? Right? Now, did you ask this person what their preferred pronoun is? What gender they identify with? On what grounds did you make that assumption? Why is that still allowed? I wouldn't be surprised if there will be an effort now to have people no longer say that. After all, you can't say boys and girls at Disneyland. You can't say ladies and gentlemen on airplanes. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's gone. Hello, everyone, or all our passengers. The British tube dropped the ladies and gentlemen years ago. Because they're not just ladies and gentlemen on the tube. They're ladies and gentlemen and other. Yes, a major number. Yet, in the course of your life, you almost never come across an other. Did you ever say to a waiter, sir, can I trouble you for uh, uh, another coffee, a refill, please? And were you ever told, I'm sorry, uh, you've misgendered me? Why, Why is that okay? Why is it okay for us to make assumptions? And by the way, it goes in in the other direction. If somebody has transitioned, quote-unquote, and that person appears to you to be, let's say, female in every way, dressed, speech, face, hair, and you just to say, uh, ma'am, can I, can I trouble you for some more napkins? So what, what, there's, there's no issue there. The issue is not accepting people on, on face value. In fact, face value is exactly how we, we assume people are male or female. The issue is that we are told there's no such thing as male, female, that it is purely subjective. That is why uh, uh, Michael Knowles is fighting transgenderism, not transgendered people. Last summer, this woman writes in The Federalist, I went to establish care at a new doctor's office. My beloved pediatrician, one of the few true family doctors, 
left in the industry, had once kindly offered to keep seeing me until I have my own children. But I was in the midst of a post-college move, and that was no longer feasible. So I found myself in a waiting room, wading through the moat of new patient forms that stand between patients and doctors all across America. Yes, that's another issue, isn't it? The bureaucratization of medicine. As many of those forms now do, this one wanted to know not only my sexual orientation and sex. That's interesting. Why would they ask? That I haven't seen. Sexual orientation. What? Why, why does that matter to a doctor? And in any event, and sex, but also the so-called gender I was, quote, assigned at birth. By the way, that's another Orwellian lie of the left. You're assigned at birth? No. You are at birth. We don't need any passive participle. You are not given at birth, assigned at birth, assumed at birth. You are at birth. You are born a boy or a girl, except in the infinitesimally small uh, and therefore statistically insignificant number of people uh, with ambivalent or, excuse me, ambiguous uh, genitalia. Everybody is born a boy or a girl, and even they, now that we can uh, identify chromosomes, uh, we would be able to know if it's a boy or a girl otherwise. So I was asked the gender I was, quote, assigned at birth, whether I identified as transgender and my preferred pronouns. Five separate questions. I would love to know what city this took place in. She doesn't write. As if that weren't enough, when the nurse walked me back into the doctor's office, she proceeded to ask me the same questions again. I might have pointed out that I already had to endure this interrogation once. I know I made a face... Looking back, I wish I'd thought fast enough to remind her that sex is an immutable characteristic that is neither assigned nor reassigned. But I was just ready to get out of there. Needless to say, I never went back. A colleague of mine had a similar experience filling out an online form for his daughter's upcoming medical visit. After spending 20 minutes trying to unsuccessfully click Submit, He realized that while he'd already selected female under the tab for gender, there was a small separate box he had overlooked labeled sex, where he had to select female again. Wow. So at the doctor's office, there was sex and there was gender. Plenty of patients have been forced to jump through hoops like these. It's an obviously silly performance, since we all know doctors will treat you based on your real sex, no matter what you write down. We're not giving mammograms to men yet. At least I hope not. But having doctors ask about your pronouns isn't just an obnoxious chore. It's a sign of the healthcare industry's willingness to forego medical reality for a few ideological brownie points. And that is a sure sign of an industry in decline. What is happening to American medicine is very scary. 
with medical review boards taking licenses away from doctors who prescribed hydroxychloroquine, which is at worst harmless and at best life-saving. And then the, the children's hospitals that are proud to tell you that they, they do gender-affirming care on little children. Remember the ad I played for you, or the, I don't know if it was an ad or just a public announcement by the Boston Children's Hospital, by one of its women doctors, that we, or women spokesmen, that uh, by age of six, there are so many who already know that they're transgender. This is Boston Children's Hospital, the children's hospital affiliated with Harvard Medical School. I don't know if it's the more elite, the more uh, destructive, or it's irrelevant whether you're elite or not. You're just destructive in any of these professions. The medical profession is now held in less respect than at any time in American history. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, In light of something I just said at the end of the last segment, this is a perfect example of using a, a talk show to learn what people are thinking. Am I an outlier? And I might be. I might be. In saying that, in general, the medical profession is held in lower regard today than it ever ever in American history. Now that doesn't mean you're a doctor or my doctor, but the profession with the children's hospitals that are utterly on board and proactive and advocative of surgery and other interventions like hormone blockers on minors and the suppression of doctors by medical boards who advocated any therapeutics like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, which are harmless drugs and which I believe 
to the extent, uh, how much did I believe it? I took them. Took them out for about a year. I got COVID at least twice. I'm perfectly fine. And uh, I, I thank God I was never vaccinated uh, in this regard. The the sheep-like behavior of doctors, at, uh, the advocacy of masks that was irrelevant to science, the advocacy of closing schools that doctors were behind, of course not all. Um, but I am curious if it has affected you in the way in which you see uh, the uh, the medical profession today. Okay, so I'm going to let go of a few calls here that uh, uh, I thank you for calling, uh, uh, but I I I want to I want to do this one. Uh, Eric in Fort Worth, Texas. Hello. Hello. How are you today, Dennis? I'm well, thank you. Okay, so here's the deal with sex and gender, as I found out. If you search the net, you can find this out yourself. Sex, as you say, is, you want to call it assigned, or you are, at birth, male or female. Then, as you grow older, you can decide about what gender you are. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, not only do I understand it, I have been explaining that for about five years. Perhaps you're not a regular listener. I know exactly what you're saying. Okay, so what you have said, I just said earlier on today's show. I know the difference, but they made it up. They made that up. Well, Gender gender was a made-up term for subjective sex. Well, it's something that's happened since the 1950s, where you're kind of stuck in the 1950s, I, I feel like. Yeah, in terms of truth, I am stuck in the 1950s, 1850s, 1350s, and 50s. You sound like you are stuck in the modern age that denies truth. No, we're not denying truth. We're, we're oh, really? Expanding. Do you believe, would you say you're expanding truth? I see. Do you believe that men give birth? No, because that do you know that, do you know that at every university in this country they say to kids that men give birth? Do you think that that's well, a problem? If you're talking about sex or gender, you have to just define which. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. They say men give birth. They don't use the word sex or gender. That is the phrase. If you don't believe okay. men give birth, you're a hater. Okay, but if a woman trans transgender into a man, that man can give birth. So therefore, but you just said to me, you don't say men give birth. Well, it's it's a lot of uh, a lot of it's semantics. Dennis. Semantics are everything. Okay, don't uh, either you say it or you don't. In other words, you said to me, I'm stuck in the fifties with regard to truth. I said you're stuck in the twenty twenties with regard to non truth. Would you say men give birth? And you said, no, you wouldn't. Now you say it's just semantics. I, would, I wouldn't say that if you're assigned at birth as, as a male. Uh, okay, all right. I, I, it's not a trick birth. question. Would you say men give birth? If you don't say, if you deny men give birth on an American campus today, you are considered a hater. Well, I don't consider, there's two different things. A person that's assigned at birth as a man 
can't. You're not wait. You're not born a man. You're assigned. It's like you're assigned uh, a a certain bed in the hospital uh, baby room. It's a little more complicated than that. No, no, no. Okay, okay. I I don't. I don't understand what that means. It's a little more complicated. But unfortunately, we have to take a break. I'm I'm pleased that you called. It's an interesting. It was a very actually interesting call. If you believe that there is objective truth in any of these matters, you're stuck in the 1950s. Maybe the 1950s had a greater veneration of truth than the 2020s. Is that possible? But I understand the the sentiment because there is this belief that the modern period, not modern, contemporary period, is more wise, more bright, more enlightened, more moral than any period that has preceded us. Look around. You think that's true? Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. It is, and I don't say this often, an honor to speak to my guest, Heather McDonald. She's a gift to this country. She's a lover of truth, and she's a fighter. It's not enough to love truth, although that already puts you in a minority, and I, I mean that literally, of human beings. But uh, she fights. Her latest book, she's, by the way, at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of the Great City Journal. book just came out, When Race Trumps Merit. Get that? When Race Trumps Merit. You would think it's a book about the Ku Klux Klan or, or about Jim Crow laws, right? That's when race last trumped merit. When bona fide white supremacists were in charge of anything. And now the left has mimicked everything about the racists of the past. They believe race trumps merit. Just like they did in the past. How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Again, when race trumps merit, it is up at DennisPrager.com. The last time I saw Heather McDonald was at a meeting in New York City a few months ago. May I say what you showed me, Heather? <laughs> I'm going to say it because I'm still so proud. I was wearing my, my PragerU video socks with a the very orange accent, which I otherwise would not have chosen, but if it's PragerU, I'm going to wear them. And here's here's the topper, folks. Heather had no clue that she would see me that day. No clue. That's it right. was a total shock. So Part of it my... was not worn for my sake. <laughs> <laughs> but immediately my shin went up. I, I shook yep. the shin at, at, at Dennis. <laughs> That's right. And I, I loved it. That was that was a great moment. I, I came back and told everybody about it. Now I'm telling every literally everybody about it. Well, so I Heather, any, yeah, go I haven't ahead. Any since then. I haven't gotten any since then. So uh, I need I need a, a refill, Dennis. Okay, I'll I'll let I'll let Prager you know. Thank you. I have a feeling I have a feeling they would treat you to it. <laughs> All right, so uh, you you have been uh, waging this battle as I have, but you you really have given all the data. That that's the point. When when uh, race trumps merit, 
what I always wonder about these things is how this is what preoccupies me, and then we'll get into the details. How did this happen? How did the most merit-based country in the world history come to have contempt for merit? Well, I think it's because of the history that you alluded to, Dennis, which is that for decades, for centuries, we did not uh, operate consistent with our founding principles. And we really did treat blacks with gratuitous cruelty, heartbreaking contempt. It, it, it just outrageous me every time I read uh, chronicles of black experience in the South and in the North, uh, culminating in just the barbaric treatment in the 1950s in the South. And so, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, my, my fault. Go ahead. White whites are understandably deeply, deeply troubled and still guilt ridden by that history. Now, I would argue that one can both acknowledge the fact that we were a white supremacist country, we were an apartheid country uh, until quite recently in grotesque violation of our founding ideals. And I will at the same time assert without qualification that we are not that country today. We are not. There is not a single mainstream institution, Dennis, in this country, as you alluded to, that is not... uh, working on behalf of blacks that is not exercising huge racial preferences in favor of blacks to try to hire and promote as many as possible. Americans today yearn to be post-racial, especially white Republicans. They're probably the most post-racial group in the country. They've had one love affair after another with black politicians, whether it's Ben Carson or Alan West or Alan Keyes. Uh, Herschel Walker, it goes on and on, Condi Rice, Colin Powell. What matters to conservative white Republicans is your values, not your skin color. Nevertheless, there's a significant portion who are still guilt-ridden, and they are they are susceptible to what is now simply a race hustle. And they are willing to destroy the standards of Western civilization in order to avoid the phony charge of being racist. Yeah, so are you, and this is truly just a question, I don't I don't have an agenda here, are, are you saying that it is primarily concern for blacks, or is it a disdain for Western civilization's standards, or, or 50-50? I, I, I haven't thought about that. Uh, I, my initial reaction is to split the difference and say it's both. I, I think the willingness to tear down our standards uh, and to impugn medicine, mathematics is racist. I mean, how absurd is that? And yet the leaders of, of medical profession, the leaders of the mathematics profession our STEM journals, our STEM agencies in the federal government have all proclaimed that the extraordinary enlightenment professions that is their privilege to curate are racist. So yes, it is contempt for Western civilization, but I think it is also a misplaced uh, concern for blacks, the belief that they, and certainly the MAGA hat wearing Republicans Uh, are continuing to oppress blacks, and they, I think, 
sincerely believe, I mean, we all ask ourselves, are they, can they really possibly believe this? Uh, do they really believe that lowering standards uh, and, and letting students into academic universities who are not competitively qualified is helpful? I think they actually believe that it is helpful and that they are the only thing standing between blacks today and a resurrection of the Ku Klux Klan. So my my take is very similar, but I just want to amplify for just one moment. I, I think that disdain for the West is at least 50%. And I'll, I'll give you my example because you and I uh, are sort of outliers even among our peers in our preoccupation with classical music. The the New York the former New York Times chief music critic Anthony Tomasini wrote that we should never think that Western music, Western classical music, is the best music. Who's to say that Beethoven's Third Symphony is any better than Indonesian gamelan music? So that had nothing to do with American blacks. That so it's on that basis that I think that the the, the two aspects the the contempt for the West and and a theoretical wanting to help blacks are at least evenly uh, tied for motivation. My response to that, Dennis, would be that Tamasini would not have made that statement if we did not have our ongoing racial disparities, and and uh, and if our elites did not feel guilty about the fact that our traditions are not diverse by contemporary standards are not that classical music composers in the canon are not 13% black and that today our orchestras are not 13% black. So I don't know the context of Tomasini's com- uh, comment, but m- my guess is, is none of this would be happening if we did not have these ongoing racial disparities in terms of representation in meritocratic institutions, and overrepresentation of blacks in prison, uh, you know, in, in the terms of the criminal justice system, if blacks weren't overrepresented in prison, the basic uh, attitude would be throw the throw the bums in jail and throw away the key. Uh, it is only because blacks are overrepresented in prison that we have criminal justice reform, and it is only because. Uh, we don't see blacks proportionally represented in our meritocratic institutions that we're saying that science is is racist. Mm-hmm. So you think the uh, the animating impulse is uh, guilt over prior treatment to blacks more than it is a disdain for the West? At this point, they're equal. But I think that what if if we if we didn't have racial disparities. If, if Google in a meritocratic system had 13% black engineers and computer scientists, which is at present impossible at the, with maintaining meritocratic standards because the academic skills gap is so huge and we can go into the numbers later. Uh, if, if we didn't have disparities, I don't think we would have turned on Western civilization. We only turned on Western civilization when we started noticing disparities and feeling guilty about them. But at this point, it kind of doesn't matter because... No, no, we, I agree. I, I I just, I so admire your thinking. I was curious, curious how you explain it. All right, let me just remind people, When Race Trumps Merit is the book. 
How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. We'll get into all three of those with Heather McDonald. When Race Trumps Merit. How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives by Heather McDonald, who has researched this at least as much and probably more than any living person. Was it your piece that I read about that was at the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York? Was it was that your piece of, of a couple of months ago? Uh, well, the, muse- the, the Metropolitan Museum uh, staged an exhibit called The Fictions of Emancipation that argues that any time a white uh, creates an abolitionist piece of art, he's engaged in white supremacy. That the oh, sorry, abolitionist- it was the Met, yeah. The, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, my mistake. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is just appalling. Uh, this they, The Metropolitan Museum is basically willing to throw out every single tradition of art in order to make the argument that a white artist sculpting with extraordinary humanity, sensitivity, and empathy, a black woman uh, who's enslaved in order to make an abolitionist, emancipationist work of art, that that sculptor is in fact simply trying to oppress blacks. Uh, The Met staged an entire show around that thesis. The title sort of says it all called The Fictions of Emancipation. And if, if anybody needs a translation, what the Metropolitan Museum of Art is saying is that emancipation was itself just a ruse and a fiction. Uh, so this is typical. You have now museum directors turning on Western art itself, saying that everything is racist. If you're an abolitionist, you're a racist. It's simply amazing, Dennis. Well, what's amazing is that people whom you would have thought after all, to become a curator of a major art museum, you presumably, at the very least, have to love art. Right. But but they don't. It, Not it, anymore. That's... Right. I, I'm, I'm astounded. These people are the most privileged individuals in history. They have been given the incredible privilege of curating the greatest civilization, the most sublime works of beauty, of accomplishment, of understanding into the human condition, of being able to portray the landscape in ways that that allow us to see it through new eyes. And yet they have now declared that their mission as museum leaders and curators is so-called anti-racism. And what that means is turning on the history of 5,000 years of art as Max Hollein the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, has announced. It also means in the case of the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, one of the great art museums in the world, I recommend that everybody go see its little corridor of 18th century pastel portraits, Rococo portraits. Uh, there's, I have on my, on my sm- smartphones a pastel portrait, you would like it, Dennis, of, a, of an extraordinary violinist Uh, with the most ironic modern glance. But the Art Institute got rid of all its docents who were providing 
Chicago school children tours and lectures and and understanding of of the Art Institute's collections at no cost to the Institute because those docents were white. That is the only reason, uh, and the and the museum did not deny this. The only reason that that the docents were sacked was because they were white. This is part of a wave of white culling that is going across our institutions, whether with regards to living individuals or past individuals whose only sin at this point is being white. But that's not racist. That's that's the Orwellian aspect. So I, I want our listeners to understand people who... Uh, curate these museums, the, the directors, the curators of these museums of art, are in effect saying that they have devoted their entire life to racism, to promoting racism. Do they, do they ever look in the mirror and, and wonder, how did this happen? I entered a field which, which is saturated with racism, and that's what I do uh, when I'm not at home every day of the week. Uh, that's the big question we all have, Dennis, is do they really believe it? I get asked this all the time, and I don't have any insight, uh, but I'm going to use Occam's razor and, and assume that they do. That's the simplest explanation rather than they're living in this constant charade. I think that they are so committed to feeling that they are superior to everybody else that they they believe it, even though... Presumably, when they started art history school uh, decades ago, they didn't believe it because this this hatred of the West did begin in academia. Already in the 1980s, you had art history departments deconstructing art, you know, saying that, well, uh, it's all about simply class, you know, propping up the, the, the power of the wealthy commission patrons of art. Uh, but it got worse and worse. But museums were took a while to catch up. But I think now they do believe that. And um, it just makes them feel virtuous. But it is absolutely tragic because, uh, you know, Max Holain has said that he's going to do an anti-racist narrative. He says our museum now is all about narratives. We have 5,000 years of art here and we're all about anti-racist narratives. Here's the reality, Dennis. The 99% of art in the Western tradition has nothing to do with race. Sorry, guys. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about what interested artists 500 years ago. They weren't thinking in our racial categories. And now we have the supreme solipsism and narcissism of imposing our current obsessions on the past and canceling past works of art if they do not pass our litmus test. That is profoundly self-centered, narrowing and limiting, and it prevents us from expanding outside of our petty selves into something much greater than ourselves, which is the artistic vision of these great artists of the past, whether it's painters, printmakers, composers, uh, theater, theater writers, it's it's a tragedy, and we are preventing students. From if I asked this, uh, Heather, if I asked this, uh, who is this, the one in Chicago you're talking about now, Lane? 
Chicago is James Rondeau, who's a total fool, and I can back that up, read the chapter on him. It spent me hours, I took hours trying to transcribe a speech he gave at the Des Moines Art Institute, and I I'd spent hours getting down every uh, you know, like, uh-huh. Uh, so please read this statement and see what our contemporary museum leaders actually sound I, like. I want to I wanna push it as if it were my own book, it's so good, When Race Trumps Merit. How the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty, threatens lives. I'm going to talk about threatens lives when we come back. You're listening to The Dennis Prager Show with Heather McDonald. I'm Dennis Prager with Heather McDonald. book just came out, When Race Trumps Merit. The subtitle, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. So, on to the threatens lives aspect, You're, you concentrate quite correctly on the amount of murder, which is as life-threatening as it gets, clearly, attempted murder and murder, and that has increased in the pursuit of equity, and therefore, since blacks are disproportionately represented as violent criminals who are incarcerated, we need to stop incarcerating as much as we have. So therefore, more people will hurt people. I want to, though, uh, talk about the the threat to lives. I, I, we get to that, obviously. But I want to throw one at you. And I haven't finished your book yet. I have it in, uh, I have it in three editions, I might add. I have it in Kindle, I have it in Audible, and I have it in hardcover. Just, I just wanted you to know that. There is no, if you, if you put it out in Braille, I would buy it. <laughs> I'm sure it's about the Audible, uh, cause I was worried about the pronunciation capacity of the reader, so I haven't heard it yet. So I'm, I'm a little worried about whether she took on the Schiller in German or her French pronunciations for the artist names, but, uh. Well, you, you can imagine how I feel. Again. So my reader is is confronted with all these Hebrew words in my Bible commentary. So exactly. I totally I totally identify. <laughs> so the one that I want to raise with you that is not about crime is the United Airlines having announced about a year ago that it's reserving half of its places at its pilots school for women and minorities, racial minorities. Are, are, are you familiar with that, and do you cover it in the book, and what's your thought? No, that got so much coverage already, but it's, it's absolutely uh, that I didn't cover it in the book, but it's absolutely standard. I mean, that's in a nutshell what's going on in medical schools. You know, it, it, you, we all worry about a pilot being promoted on the basis of the trivialities and irrelevancies of sex or race, same thing, uh, doctors that are now being pushed into medical school based on race, not not uh, academic qualifications are being pushed through medical school based on uh, race or sometimes sex rather than medical qualifications and into hospitals. So this is happening everywhere uh, and people should really pay start paying attention and demand an end to the race hustle and the lowering of standards in the name of diversity and say we are going to apply our standards whether it's for pilot school or medical school medical research 
and let the chips fall wherever they may. The standards are not racist. The standards are not the problem. When you say people should say this, what exactly do you mean? Because I get this every day, and I com- I, I completely empathize with the person asking this. In other words, I I, I, f- I feel their pain, and in, 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 not in the Clinton sense, but in a genuine, genuine sense. What should the average individual do? Well, the average individual may not have that much power, but anybody who is has a public platform uh, should be fighting back against the charge that any institution that is not racially proportionate is per se racist. And we should have the facts at our, our fingertips to explain why you cannot have meritocracy and diversity at the same time. Uh, the average person, uh, if you're in a conversation with a colleague or a friend who insists on the systemic racism argument and and is arguing that medicine is racist because there's not 13% black faculty members in medical schools or we have racial disparities in health outcomes, you know, we can start our locally arm yourself with those facts that explain the academic skills gap and how it's, again, you cannot have meritocracy in medicine and have diversity at the same time. If, if you want diversity, you're going to have to sacrifice meritocracy. Everybody and can do that. Everybody can, can issue that in a tweet or on their Facebook page or what have you. The book is When Race Trumps Merit. Heather McDonald, back in a moment. I'm speaking with Heather McDonald, author of many terrific books, and of course, the latest, which is uh, a major achievement. And I want to get to the uh, my copy here, uh, as I was bragging that I have it in every... Uh, Every format it's made, when race trumps merit, how the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellent, destroys beauty, and threatens lives. So I was talking about the airplane pilot decision, and your chapters on the threatened lives are primarily about the crime issue. I'm going to ask a a question because of my belief that truth matters, not because of any other reason. Is it fair to say that on any on any given day in any random street that statistically speaking a white individual has more to fear from a black attacker than a black from a white attacker? That is absolutely the case, Dennis. If you look at the entire universe of interracial crime between blacks and whites on the one hand and whites and blacks on the other, Uh, Blacks commit about 85% of all interracial crime. Uh, Seven times more instances of black-on-white crime than white-on-black crime. That is, of course, the exact opposite of the narrative. It is amazing. This is perhaps one of the most egregious, shameless instances 
of media and political lying that we're having to live with today. Uh, we're now following the uh, shooting of the boy in Kansas City, Ralph Yarl, and the usual maudlin outpouring that this is how black people die, uh, that whites are, are you know, gunning down blacks all the time. The, the reality is, uh, so we have a new, well, black hashtags. You know, we used to have driving while black. Now we have from the mayor of Kansas City in, in the wake of this Ralph Yarl shooting, existing while black. Well, I'm composing at this very moment a while white list of the amounts of assaults, murders, shootings, beatings up, uh, uh, bullying blacks on whites. And I apologize to your delicately sensible sensibility listeners because it is very unusual for whites to talk with this degree of frankness and it makes many people very uncomfortable, Dennis. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that the vast majority of interracial violence is blacks beating up on whites and beating up on Asians. And we've all seen those videos of elderly Asians being absolutely pummeled, stomped on by black teens. And yet the, the degree of racial ideology and bad faith is such that we go around pretending that the problem is white supremacy. It is simply stunning. Yep. You get to go to college campuses and what happens? <laughs> uh, people, you, you know, I have the same experience as you do, Dennis. The mob goes berserk. It is really something to be in face, in the face of or in front of the student mob and to feel directly the degree of irrationality, of self-pity, uh, of maudlin hysteria coming out of these students and knowing that the adults on campus are doing absolutely nothing to correct that hysteria. They are encouraging it. And, and every year, these colleges are belching forth another 100,000 or whatever the numbers are of students that are absolutely in, indulging in self-pity and are seeing the world through utterly distorted lenses. Where was the last place you spoke? And did you did you actually get to finish your speech? Uh, I can't remember the last one. It um, it may have. Well, I was at MIT last last month oh, good. debating. And, and go on. That was a debate on whether to abolish campus diversity bureaucracies, uh, but that was mostly, the audience was mostly MIT alums. There were very few students there. So yes, that debate I continued and you can, people can find my opening statement on the web uh, of the MIT, great MIT debate. Uh, so that was, but the students basically were not there. Um, and before that, I don't remember whether it was Holy Cross, uh, but I've, that was a walkout. Holy Cross was a walkout by students who tried to uh, first take up all the seats in the auditorium. And then as I was discussing Renaissance humanism and Petrarch, uh, they all decided that was the moment to leave because I was, my thesis was that as, as college students, they were 
the most privileged individuals in human history because they had at their fingertips they the are. thing that sold us all right we got a break, and I got to say goodbye. You're a treasure in this country. When race trumps merit, folks, it, it's it's hard to put down. In the you, pursuit Dennis. of equity, thank you. Sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty, and threatens lives. When race trumps merit. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.